Welcome to CTO Confessions with TC Gill. Brought to you by IT Labs. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This episode of CTO Confessions is brought to you by the one and only IT Labs, providing technology leaders with purpose-driven development teams for high-performance, innovation and productivity. What more could you want? Please think of us like tech leaders' favourite off-the-shelf service, providing quality, high-performing teams off that shelf. And your host today is me, TC Gill, IT Labs Chief Talking Officer, and I'm speaking from London, UK. So, Nick, welcome to CTO Confessions. It's great to have you on board, sir. Thank you very much for having me here. So tell the audience who you are, who you work for, and what do you do? I am Nick Petty. I am the CTO or Chief Technology Officer of Clear. Clear in the U.S. is well known as an airport company that allows you to leverage biometric identity to go through the security line faster. That's where we've been for sort of the past decade or so. More recently, we're taking that same biometric identity platform and starting to expand it into a broad set of, of use cases around you know, everything that makes you you in a various contexts. Renting a car, checking a hotel, checking into a doctor's office, all the various places where you might pull identity out of your wallet, you can use your face instead. Fantastic. Before we jump into your journey as a tech leader, I'm really interested in what the problem the company is actually solving. Is it security? Really a combination of safety, security, and convenience, right? So a great example, an area where we're having a lot of focus these days is healthcare. And if you think about your visit to a healthcare, to a doctor's office, right? What's the first thing that happens? They hand you a clipboard with a piece of paper. They ask you to fill out a bunch of really personal stuff, right? And then you hand that piece of paper back to that person behind the counter. And then what happens to that piece of paper with all your personal stuff on it? Uh, theoretically, it gets digitized. Hopefully it gets digitized correctly. And then theoretically it gets stored safely or shredded or something, but who knows, right? Yeah. Uh, imagine a world where instead of doing any of that, you just walked up and grab a, a, a selfie of your face, do a biometric match, you go, oh yeah, that's, that's Nick. And here's all his information. There's a, a convenience there, there's compliance there, there's uh, you know security there, right? There's a bunch of really big benefits there. And that's just one example, healthcare being a sort of obvious one that we're really, we're really excited about. I suppose so, because you do see this kind of quite antiquated, quite industrial age processes and what have you, and, and the speed that that stuff runs on and the errors that come from that as well. Especially if you put that the overlay of the American healthcare system on it, which is, as everybody knows, is a big mess, right? And you'd sort of put in insurance, you know, providers, things like that, right? Now, Let's imagine, take that same example, and now let's add one more dimension to it, which is now you have to do an insurance claim against that visit for whatever reason, right? Now, how does the doctor's office and the insurance company know that you're this, that's the same Nick, right? Yes. You know, again, the way that happens today is one of them faxes a piece of paper to the other one, literally faxes it. Another person on the other side gets that fax piece of paper, looks at it, gets another piece of paper, and goes, okay, yeah, that's Nick. Hopefully they're right, right? Yes. And then they fax the piece of paper back, right? That's, it's, it's barbaric almost. It's ridiculous. <laughs> right. Yes. And, and this is what I love about technology, and this is what I love about tech leaders, because I don't think we appreciate enough what tech and tech leaders are doing. We're literally making our lives easier in many respects. Some people might say it actually makes our life harder, but I think there's a real positive side to it that potentially can make things a lot smoother, a lot cheaper, a lot more affordable, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's what we all got into it for, right? I mean, it's the instant gratification of being able to solve problems. It's uh, it's an incredible feeling. It's what engineers live for, I think. It's my personal view. Brilliant. I love it. So now I'm really interested in your journey, okay? Your mm. yellow brick road, the journey that you've taken to here. What's your journey been like in tech leadership? I would probably summarize my journey as uh, force gumping my way through my career. Cool. Just uh, doing the best I can do with what I have and being fortunate enough 
to sort of stumble upon these amazing opportunities along the way. And then always sort of being willing to take the leap to go do it. You know, starting with dropping out of university. So I went to UC Berkeley, go Bears, and really enjoyed my, my collegiate um, experience. But, uh, you know, my, my family didn't have a lot of money. I had to sort of work and get scholarships and grants to get through it. And it was just, it was a lot of stress. It was, it was very hard. And by the, by the time I'd gotten most of the way through, I found myself really not meditating very much from, but I mean, I started coding when I was eight years old, right? And not to say that I'm this is some amazing developer or something, but it's just, you know, when I got to my freshman year of university and I was taking CS61A, I was, I was bored. I was like, yeah, I, I dealt with this already. Let's get on to the good stuff. Hmm. Um, and so by, you know, three years in, I'm, I'm, I'm stressed out. I'm, I'm deep in debt on student loans and that. And I'm like, I'm not even benefiting from this anymore. And meanwhile, the dot-com boom is happening. It's 98, 99, right? Um, I'm missing out here. Um, I got to get in. Left school and uh, took my first job, which uh, is maybe a funny story in and of itself if we have enough time, uh, that, that very first one. But from there, I kind of just uh, started working my way through opportunities. I ended up at a startup that got bought by Amazon. You know, I worked at Amazon for a long time. Uh, once I felt like I had learned enough there, uh, this opportunity at PayPal came up. So I moved to California in the U.S. It was with PayPal for a while. Um, at that point, another startup opportunity came along. I sort of made the jump there. A really fascinating little, little on-demand company called The Happy Home Company that I love working for. And then sort of pursued a, a thesis of developing my leadership skills. Um, and then, yeah, I just, I, I really, I feel very fortunate that I've had the chance to work at some incredible companies with some incredible people. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to repeat what I said offline. I've got tech leadership envy, okay? So you've had a beautiful journey. <laughs> and uh, interesting thing is, as we mentioned offline as well, that, you know, these are big companies, small companies, big companies, small companies. I just, I just want to understand or learn from you that kind of what you've learned from that perspective. Going yeah. big, small, big, small. Yeah, and especially interesting, more sometimes more interesting contrast than even the big, small, big, small is uh, regulated to unregulated. So I've worked at a couple of U.S. banks as well. And so going from a place like, say, Capital One, which is a U.S. bank, to Uber, which is a, you know, a very tech forward company, right? Vastly different cultures and sort of perspectives as well. So what, what, what I would say is that I don't have a particular affinity to an industry or a specific technology. I like making things. I like having impacts. Um, in a way that's valuable to people, society, you know, whoever. I don't, you know, I, I don't have to be curing cancer, but I want to know that I'm working on something that's of value and importance to people. And uh, I find that value in all kinds of places, right? It's just different kinds of problems to solve. So uh, again, so using the bank to tech company example, right? You know, one of the interesting things about working on a bank is you have a very tight set of regulatory constraints, right? You have to sort of work within a very, very narrow sort of window. As an example, uh, one of the most common constraints you have working in a bank is um, you need separation of duties between production management and software development. So there's no chance for corruption or, or sort of, you know, shenanigans, right? And so what that implies is you want to have a continuous deployment pipeline you need to build some mechanism to that pipeline so that the person who checks in the code who's going to get deployed in that pipeline isn't the same person who ultimately ends up pushing it into production and, and operating it, right? So it sort of suggests a manual step, but then how do you sort of make continuous deployment actually happen? So how do you sort of navigate that regulatory constraint and still do modern software practices? So really, I find that to be a really interesting problem to solve, especially at large scale. So I find that problem equally as interesting to solve as, say, then going to a company like Uber um, and building a, a new grocery product from scratch, which is what I did at, at Uber Eats in Toronto, or going to a much smaller company and trying to build something brand new from scratch, which is kind of what we were doing at the Happy Home Company, right? But all those involve building and solving a problem that to me, I think is very interesting. Love it, that's great. And as I say, what, what a wonderful journey. I wanna now shine the light back onto you, Nick, around your leadership and your passion. What's your passion? What drives you? 
My passion is great software cultures and great code craftsmanship. Nice. Right. Uh, I, I love, like, I love what I kind of realized, and this goes to, I think, where I made that transition to leadership versus being an IC developer, right? Is that I kind of had this, again, fortunate, I kind of stumbled into this position is that when I was at PayPal, where I was a very, I was a very senior architect. And I wasn't directly being a huge, like a people manager, but I was leading a very large group of people at a very large project. And I, and I was able to sort of see very quickly, oh, if I do this right, there's actually a lot of impact I can have here. If I can steer these, this, this, this corpus of engineers correctly, like, wow, I, I, what an outside impact I can have individually, right? Once I kind of understood that, that, that pushed me into the leadership journey. Um, and then that kind of made me realize, oh, what I'm really doing, the highest levers, the highest impact I can have is creating environments and cultures where all the rest of the engineers can put their best foot forward. And so anytime I can create, you know, a high performing team, a high performing environment where people can come and, and people come in, and when an engineer comes to tell me, like, oh, I love working here. I love the, the environment here. I love the people that I'm working with. Then I kind of know that I've done my job correctly. Brilliant. I love it. That's great. And what's your style as a leader? I think you kind of touched on it a little bit there, but how do yeah. you roll as a leader? Uh, I, I'm very much of the servant leadership tribe, maybe more of a label than uh, I would put on myself as an organically sort of trained leader, right? I'm just coming up the ranks, mentoring and learning along the way. But I, I do very much come from the perspective of my job is to remove roadblocks from my leaders, my people that are, that are reporting to me, enabling them to do their best job, right? So I, I was very fortunate at one point to have this really great mentor, her name is Matthew Manjaric. You know, I worked for him at PayPal, um, and then you know later on he was uh, at YouTube and a couple other places. He's, he's a fascinating guy as well, and he's a really, really dear friend of mine. And one time I was reporting to him, he was a CTO, as head of engineering. We we're having this like long sort of walking, talking, where do you want to be in 10 years sort of career conversation, right? Um, and I was like, listen, man, I want your job. I want to be CTO one day. And he's nice. like, yeah, great. Like, what do you think a CTO does? And I was like, well, you know, a CTO does this and this and this and this. And he goes, yeah, no, that's, that is all incorrect. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, wait, what? No, I, like, listen, what are you talking about? I, I, I'm, I know what a CTO does. I'm an experienced operator. What are you talking about? He's like, no, listen, if I'm doing my job correctly as CTO, I do two things. I set the vision for what needs to be accomplished. And then I make sure they have the right people to accomplish it. Full stop. Mm. Right. And that was a really powerful bit of like a nugget for me that I, I kind of took and, and held on to and thought about really hard because what I very quickly realized if I pulled on that thread was, oh, actually, that's true of all levels of leadership. And in fact, that's what you're always kind of striving for. And I kind of started to think about it as um, kind of the same way you think about like site reliability, right? You measure it in terms of number of nines of reliability, right? 99.99% or whatever. We measure it that way because we know that 100% reliability is a theoretical impossibility, right? It's never going to be 100% impossible on a long enough timeline, right? So um, we always strive for some measure getting close to it, right? And so I, I look at that sort of that North Star of the two things I'm supposed to do as the same thing where I'm never going to perfectly execute that because I'm always going to get distracted by things or I'm always going to get my hands on something or I'm always going to get pulled into something no matter what. But every time that happens, every time I'm doing something, I ask myself, okay, wait, I'm doing something. I'm not setting vision. I'm not like giving, not hiring, giving feedback to my hires. So I, I haven't delegated properly here. I'm not, I haven't organized myself properly here. And so that's a, that's an indication to me that I need to shift course somewhere. Right. And so I focus a lot on just trying to accomplish those things. Does everybody understand what we're trying to do? Does everybody understand why we're doing what we're doing, the vision of it. Right. And does everybody have the tools and whatever they need, the feedback, the team, the whatever to accomplish that vision. And, it, and if there's something, if the answer to that is no, I don't have what I need, then that, that's my job. That's my leadership style. That's my focus is, okay, let me go get you what you need, right? Because that's my job is to enable you to be the most effective you can be in this role. Yeah, I love it. I love that kind of simple condensation of like two mm -hmm. things. Because I think we do 
sometimes as techies we get drawn into all kinds of rabbit holes and it's interesting but it, it's, it's not what a tech leader is there for and that's one of the hardest transitions that any ic going to a management role has right because up until that point all your bread and butter what you what's gotten you there what's gotten you successful is doing things being hands-on delivering good code or whatever it is right and then suddenly having to transition to now that's no longer what's going to make you successful now it's going to make you successful is helping the people who are reporting to you do that that's a that's a tough mental switch for a lot of people to make it was tough for me brilliant that's really good so now i want to ask you a painful question okay <laughs> What's your pain point? What's the thing that keeps you up at night? Tech leadership is hard, mm. I imagine. What, what is it? What is it in your space? Yeah, I could give you like a good grandiose leadership answer, but I'll, I'll give you the real authentic answer, which is that what keeps me up at night most times is replaying things I've said and making sure that I've said them correctly. What I mean by that is I'm very cognizant in my leadership of the weight that my voice carries that, uh, you know, and, and I'm sure every CTO, every every people who's going to have a would probably have this resonate with them in some degree of like, you know, you say something to somebody in terms of expressing a, a desire or a vision or, or even just an idea. And then suddenly that person runs off with it. Oh, the CTO says we got to go do this. And then they're off, off to the races heading in the wrong direction. And uh, no, you know, no, that's not what I meant. I was just, <laughs> it was just an idea. Right. You know, no, right. No, come back, come back. Yes. And and so when I'm giving a town hall or even if I'm just giving feedback to somebody, right, oftentimes at night, I'm laying awake in bed, replaying what I said, going, okay, could they have misconstrued that in any way? Do I need to go back and clarify anything? Was, was I on message with what I was meant to convey? Like, do I think that people are, have absorbed that correctly? Playing, knowing that the words that I'm saying are having the right impact and the right influence and not the wrong impact or being misconstrued is probably the thing that keeps me up most times, to be honest. Yes. And, and maybe the aspiring tech leaders and leaders just out there listening to this podcast right now, they're kind of sensing that as well, because what you say, even what you don't say, it's it's having an impact yes and it matters yes. it has gravity to it and uh, that's right and it, i can imagine that's quite a i can feel the pain actually i'm i'm bodily feeling it right now uh I mean, <laughs> you're, you're on that kind of edge of like, have i done the right as you set this in the wrong direction i think i recall a personal experience where i saw a leader i, I think they made a, a facial kind of expression about oh, something yeah and i read into that and i made an entire story out of it and uh, and then i went off at a tangent and actually it was something else that they were thinking of. It wasn't actually nothing to do with me or the work that I was doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's almost so often the case, right? But again, like you have to really be aware of how much people are looking at you for that, mm -hmm. that leadership, that guidance, that cue, right? Which is all the more reason why being a positive leader, being an upbeat leader, being a cheerleader as much as, as a um, guidance giver is a really critical thing. Because if you're down, if you're feeling negative, if you're portraying negativity, people will pick that up. They'll they'll understand it, right? And it becomes a very powerful tool, right? If you need to convey urgency, people will pick that up and, and, and absorb that urgency. And you can convey success, right? Like you can you can uh, you have that power to help people feel a certain way and then move the organization accordingly. And it's disconcerting to know that you have that power first and then it becomes this anxiety driver for, I don't know, like, I guess until I die. Oh, well, <laughs> yes, yes. So now kind of transitioning over to your leadership in respect to the people around you. Mm. You mentioned that you're kind of distributed, you've got different offices, mm. uh, communication. A particular one for me is alignment. I always find it fascinating how how human beings find a way of becoming unaligned. You know, mm -hmm, the, old, uh, mm -hmm, the old kind mm -hmm. of analogy of, you know, kittens herding kittens comes to mind. What are your tricks around that that you'd like to share? Yeah, um, and, and I benefit a little bit from having been both a remote site lead um, in some roles and then also sort of being a leader in the HQ at the same time. So I kind of understand both sides of that fence. 
And it is very tricky. I would say the biggest linchpin to making that successful is having the right site lead, right? Because the site lead is going to be the, the connection, the conduit to the mothership. Mm -hmm. um, and it's going to be the person that's going to advocate for that site. And if that person's not speaking up, raising their hand. So the, the reality is if you are a site lead for a remote site um, or, and or you are sort of a senior leader at a remote site, you have one extra job, which is you are constantly sort of like reminding everybody that you're there, right? Like, hey, we're over here. Here's what we're working on. Is this right? Are we aligned, right? Like you're asking, you're constantly asking, are we going the right direction? Are we going the right direction? Because you don't have the benefit of being so close to the mothership that you can kind of just understand that through osmosis or through the environment, right? Um, and so having the right person in place in that site to reach back in the other direction is really critical. And then for me, I, I make it a huge priority to be at those sites on a very regular basis. When I when I came on board at Clear, um, you know, we were we were still very much in the phase of these are relatively new sites that, that our two international sites were relatively new, and we were still kind of building the muscle and figuring out. And we hadn't had enough leadership going physically out to those places, um, mm -hmm. and so I, I made it a, a, my mission to go to each one of those sites every quarter until people started to feel like uh, that was more rote. In fact, I, I feel like I my most recent trip to my Israeli uh, team's office, I feel like I finally accomplished that, where I showed up. There wasn't a ton of planning involved. Um, there were no big happy hours and, oh, the team's going to go out and, you know, oh, Nick's here, so we're going to make a big deal out of it. I just showed up like, oh, Nick's here. Okay, cool. Hey, Nick. And I was able to sort of get some stuff done and talk to some people. And then everybody's okay, see you, see you next time, Nick. And I just left and it was no big deal. And that actually was a good thing. I felt good. That meant like, okay, me being here and, and that team being connected to me and to the, to the broader mission was no longer a, a big deal or some sort of magical thing. It was just part of the BAU. Yeah, I think it's great to hear to get that face-to-face -face time and also to build that rapport, the relationships, it's just a lot easier and a lot more fuller to do that uh, in, in situ. So critical in, in remote situations. I'll, one more quick story on that one. One of the jobs I had prior to that, uh, ShopRunner, uh, I was CTO at Lacey Show called ShopRunner. I had two sites there. I had a site in California on the West Coast of the U.S. and I had a site in a, a suburb of Philadelphia on the East Coast of, of the U.S. And the East Coast was the original office and then the California office was sort of the expansion office. But California sort of over time had become sort of the heavier weight presence. And there was a lot of a lot of animosity between the two sites on my on the engineering specifically that I when I came in I inherited right I just I, I joined I was, I was learning everybody figuring everything out and understanding this, this animosity immediately. And they just they really hated each other. And so I finally asked them I was like so like Wow. So like, guys, you guys have a really hard relationship. So what happens when you go there? Like, what, how do they treat you? Oh, I've never been there. What? Okay. Okay. Hang on. I know how to solve this problem. So basically it was very simple. I just told each of the office, listen, for the next several months, every week, one of you is going to fly to the other office. No big agenda, no whatever. Just go to the office, do your job for a week and come back. And then the next week, the other office is going to send somebody over to this one. And we're going to go back and forth until each person has been in the office one time. PC, can you go ahead and guess what happened after a few months? <laughs> All those conflicts melted away. Everybody started getting along better, right? Suddenly, it wasn't just a, a, a name that you were angry at over Slack. It was a person you had you'd broken bread with at some point, right? Yes. It's one of those really fascinating dimensions of this whole return to the office debate, you know, post-pandemic. And, uh, yeah, hey, listen, we've been working remote for years. Why, it seemed to work fine. What's the big deal? And companies struggle, I think, to quantify or articulate why it's important because it is a little bit hard to put your finger on, but it's that. Right, it's, the, it's that unquantifiable sort of je ne sais quoi of being face to face with somebody and the connection, the innovation, the sharing of, of, of purpose that, that comes from that. But you can't put a finger on exactly, but it's there. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with you. I've experienced this recently uh, meeting some of our teams is that, yes, you see each other talk and what have you, but 
I, I don't know if this is going a bit too far out there, but it's, it's like, like an energy in the room. You give energy to the room and energy, the room gives you energy back. And, and it's, it, yeah, this is where relationships, that kind of human, real human relationships get developed. That's right. And an understanding, you see the human being. You see the human being. I don't think it's far out there. It's just one of those things that we have a hard time quantifying or articulating. Yes. You, you made this really good point earlier about the power of language and having the words to describe something or not having to describe something and how it means has meaning in culture, right? We don't really have a word to like, I think the most recent word in the current vernacular is like vibe, right? We talk about the vibe, somebody's vibe, yeah. right? And you can't really quantify it, you can't really measure it, but you feel it and it, you know it when you see it and you go, okay, that's a good vibe or not good vibe and I feel good or I don't feel good about that. And that feeling has tangible results and outcomes. Yes, absolutely great. I've got a question here. Nick, around growing pains of companies. Now you've been mm. the big and the small, big, small, big, small. Yeah. What do you see as foundations for companies' growth and how to mitigate the pains of growing? It's a great question in the context of Zabam and now because I, I view that as kind of like my main vision and focus right now, right? If you think about uh, where clear the company has gone over the last 13 years we've been in business, for the vast majority, 10 to 11 years of those years, we were just that airport company, that airport product. And, and that was the product we had, people loved it. It's very popular, great brand in the US. And then very quickly, a bunch of things happened. A pandemic happened, we went public and we launched a whole new line of business, right? And so suddenly the growth and scale of the company was vastly outpacing our organization, our process, and frankly, our talents, right? And so uh, a lot of it was sort of leveling up the company in a variety of different ways to be able to sort of keep up with that growth and scale. I think that Clear is doing a good job of it because we have been mindful of that transition. Where I think a lot of companies make mistakes, big and small, is when you you aren't aware of that transition happening, that you're sort of entering another phase of growth in some way, shape, or form. And therefore, you need to start paying attention to, hopefully, things you've been tracking all along, like tech debt and organizational debt and process debt, things that you've intentionally eschewed in order to go faster on a product or, or, or some other business objective, but even then you need to go back and pay down in some way, shape or form, right? As I, I, tech debt is a great analogy for this, I think, because tech debt is not a bad word. Tech debt is not something to be avoided at all costs. Tech debt is a trade-off you make intentionally against other things. And, and we're all familiar with that, especially you know if you've been in any sort of software architecture position, right? You make trade-offs around speed versus performance, UX versus uh, you know uh, data safety or like whatever it is, right? Like you, you, you have to create these trade-offs that sort of deliver on the objective, knowing there's never a perfect solution. Tech debt is just one of those trade-offs. And you can extend that then to organizational debt. Like, oh, I don't have like, the teams aren't quite aligned correctly, but we can't, you know, we can't change it now for some reason, so we're gonna fix that later. Or, oh, we don't really have the right person in this role right now, but the person we have is good enough and we'll, you know, we can't jeopardize the trajectory, so we'll wait until later to figure that out, et cetera, et cetera, right? The problem only comes when you make a bunch of those trade-offs and either A, you don't keep track of them, or B, you don't realize that you made them. Right. And then that's when you, so that's when you get sort of get guts, right? You, you realize, right. oh shoot, we've missed the, the line. And then that's inevitably where you have to go, okay, stop the presses, hang on, deprioritize all that stuff. We gotta go back and fix this now. And, you know, I've been on a number of cases where um, my main mission was to go back and do some massive technology migration because, you know, 10 years ago, the company should have done it and they didn't. And they weren't even aware of that fact. And now here we are kind of painted into a corner. Right. And it's very expensive and very painful and very risky. Right. And so the way that you avoid all that, the way that you keep pace with growth, because you're always going to grow and you're always going to be behind your growth. If you're growing successfully, you're always going to be behind your growth. Right. You're always going to be trying to catch up to where the company is growing to. It's a great problem to have. It's the problem that we all strive for. Right. But it is a problem. And the way that you solve that problem is by being intentional and rigorous about the debt that you incur, tech debt, organization debt, talent debt, whatever. And then having a plan, even if it's years down the road, fine, but you have a plan, 
right? For how you're going to deal with that later. The trouble is when you don't have a plan, right? And then you have to, then you have to create one when you're already painted into the corner. Yes, love it. That's great. And a question here around engineering challenges. Are there any things in the tech and the space that really challenges the job that you're trying to do? I can imagine it's quite difficult with the security, the biometrics, the mm -hmm, capabilities mm -hmm. of the devices. Yeah. Yeah, I have a few different really interesting problems that we solve. Um, I'll give you kind of one interesting, sexy one, and maybe one less sexy, but also very challenging one and also very important. So in the biometric space, you know, one of the interesting problems we have is, is what we call the gallery problem. And this is really around things like facial recognition, where you're doing a recognition versus a verification. The, the nuance is subtle, but important there. A recognition means I have a face, I don't know who it is, I'm going to figure out who it is. A verification is, I know who this person says they are, let's make sure that they're actually who they say they are. Mechanically, what that usually equates to is a one-to-end -one verification versus a one-to-one -one verification. A one-to-one -one verification is very simple. I pull up Nick's you know, template, I grab his face, I compare them, yep, that's Nick, right? A one-to-end -one verification is much harder because, okay, here is Nick, and here's a vast gallery of faces. Which one of these is Nick? Or is he even one of these faces at all, right? What that equates to is basically a really simple, like uh, big O, you know, uh, computational problem, right? And, but it's but there's no like simple way around it. It's an O of N search, right? You have N number of faces in a gallery, and you have a, a, a match to make, and you have to search that gallery to find it, right? So when you want to do things like say walking speed facial verification, uh, a human walks about by about a meter and a half a second, let's call it. And so if you want to be able to do a, a walking speed, as in don't break my stride as I recognize Nick walking up. I need to be able to do that within, you know, a couple of seconds, basically, right? Um, and so the challenge becomes, how do I make sure that I have a small enough gallery size to compare Nick's face to that I can identify him within that couple of seconds in that O of N search, right? Um, and you, you, you can leverage a variety of different opportunities for that. It can be any combination of physical cues, geospatial cues. Uh, Nick's got a phone and I've got a Bluetooth beacon, so we know Nick's coming up so we can grab his his gallery image and make sure it's there. You know, we have some machine learning predictiveness, so on and so forth, right? There's all kinds of really interesting, we can we can create incentives for the for the customer to tell us when they're gonna be coming, right? So that we, we make that easier for them in some way, shape or form, right? There's all kinds of different ways we can approach that, but it, it's all in service ultimately of understanding how can we make that a really optimal biometric uh, recognition experience. Yeah. Right? So that's one of the really interesting challenges we're working on right now. Um, on the sort of less sexy, but I would argue sort of more critical side, unfortunately, is really on the compliance side, right? So we operate in airports, it's a high regulatory, high security environment, right? And we have a, 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 a large set of requirements we have to meet um, to participate in what's called the Registered Traveler Program here in the US um, in partnership with the TSA who regulates um, our airport security. One of the interesting challenges we had today is that we have just gone from being exclusively an airport company to now being a, a company that has both an, an airport uh, presence as well as a non-airport, non-regulated sort of line of business, right? Um, and so one interesting challenge you have from an architectural perspective is how do we create the right separation of, of concerns, separation of duties, and sort of auditability that I can demonstrate to the TSA or to any auditor um, that we're being compliant with all the rules, you know, and, and especially things like data access rules, which are really critical in registered travel program, right? And so, you know, we, we've architected our system in such a way that that's, that we are compliant with all those rules, but, you know, what we still have the opportunity to improve upon is how do we sort of continue to create separation such that, you know, we can focus our, our compliance efforts in a much more narrow, narrow part of our stack versus so the whole, you know, a broad set of things some which may not necessarily need to be regulated per se, but because of the way we're, they're architected, they're sort of included in the scope of those things, right? So it's a really interesting problem to solve from a compliance perspective, although maybe not as sexy as a uh, biometric galleries and things like that. 
Fantastic. I love it. I always find it interesting certain industries, as you mentioned before, have compliance in them, they're regulated and what have you, and the kind of challenges that kind of causes. And I guess it kind of has an impact on the agility, your ability to, to deliver things quickly because you're always trying to tick boxes and what have you. Right. Well, although if you think about it, it's not very different from a, a typical CICD build chain. In the sense that what you're always trying to do is satisfy a bunch of requirements. You need to make sure you're doing your unit testing. You need to make sure that you're doing your your linting. You need to make sure that you're doing your security checks, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, you're checking a bunch of boxes so you can get something from dev to production. And you're trying to automate as much of that as possible. So in an ideal world, you check in some code, it goes through all these checks automatically and then spits out the other side, right? Compliance controls aren't very different from that. They're harder to automate, right? And so you have to sort of be more mindful of that. But ultimately what you're, what you're doing is you're architecting your system such that um, the things that are relevant to be audited or things that are relevant to be controlled have the have the proper controls around them, but they're in such a way that they're automated and sort of obvious, right? So like a, a super stupid simple example of that is in your CICD pipeline, don't deploy your code if there are security vulnerabilities detected by your you know, your static analysis tool or whatever, right? That's a simple control uh, and very an obvious one, obviously, but if that's not automated, then what has to happen? Well, instead what you have to do is yeah, the developer would have to go like check a dashboard somewhere. Okay, we scanned our code. Uh, let me check the dashboard. Okay, the dashboard looks good. Now let me click the button to deploy, right? It's, it's, it's fine, it's doable, that's, that's a workable system, but it's error prone and there involves human judgment, right? Um, and it's slower, right? So anywhere where you can, sometimes you have to, right? Sometimes to be compliant, that's just what you have to do. Or maybe the, the controls are so critical that you, you, you want to insist on sort of human judgment there. Um, and you wanna have sort of belts and suspenders and double checks. And so that's another best practice in compliance is how do you build many different sort of checks and balances, belts and suspenders, as we say, to make sure that, you know, even if like the one control fails, there's a way to sort of detect it on the other side so we're still compliant, right? Yes. But again, all these things are very similar to what you would do if you were trying to optimize a, a software development lifecycle. Um, it's just more focused on compliance. I like it, that's great. So Nick, as we come now to the closing arc of the podcast, our time together, I've got some really nice warm questions I'd like to ask you. A lot of aspiring tech leaders listening to this, what advice would you give them to help them along their journey? I will actually plagiarize Sir Richard Branson's best uh, advice, I think, which is say yes and figure it out later. <laughs> um, <laughs> every role that I've taken in my career, I think I can say this honestly, every role I've taken in my career, the, one of the reasons I took it was I, I got, I looked at it and I said, oh my God, I can't, I don't know how to do that. Like uh, these people don't know that I'm a total, you know, I, they, they're going to hire me. They're going to realize I have no idea what I'm doing. That's usually the indication to me that that's the job I should take, that I should run towards that, right? That that's, that's where I'm going to stretch and growth and where uh, the most interesting problems are going to be. So my, my firm advice is um, if something is interesting to you and maybe a little bit scary, take yeah. it and figure it Love out it. later. Great advice. Great advice. And any books or films that have been instrumental in your journey? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. A, a book I love to recommend um, is called Elegant Puzzle. It was written by a former Uber engineering manager. And I, I just, I love that book, especially for sort of frontline managers or, and sort of manager managers who are in the middle of figuring out this people leadership journey. It's a really great sort of practical step-by-step Here's how to think about your org. Here's how to think about your team size. Here's how to think about your cadences, right? It's like it's a, it's like almost like a manual of how to be a good EM. And it's a really strong one. Movies-wise, one of my favorite movie quotes of all time when I think about being in a job, being a career, comes from Aaron Brockovich and the uh, inestimable Julia Roberts. Um, and there's a scene in there where she's speaking to her now boss, the, the head of this law firm that she's working for. Um, and they're, they're, I think maybe she's being fired or there's some argument that's happening. And, and the, the, the attorney that her boss tells her, uh, uh, calm down, it's, it's nothing personal. 
And she looks at him sort of in this incredulous, you know, uh, expression. He goes, nothing personal. You know how many hours I spend here? You know, this is, this is my blood, sweat and tears. This is my hours away from my kids, from my family. Like this is the most personal thing that's going on in my life right now, right? Like this, is, uh, you know, and, and I and I really uh, take that to heart because, you know, we especially in these kinds of jobs, like they are, they're 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 all encompassing, consuming jobs where you're working 40, 50, 60, 80 hours a week sometimes on these really critical things, um, and you're in the trenches with your with your partners and your peers, and it's time away from your family. My spouse doesn't know what's going on, and so I'm going to be home late tonight, whatever, and then you know, to, if I'm going to be in that environment, so I'm going to ask other people to be in that environment with me. It better matter, right? And, and it better be something that's personal. Yeah, I love it. Great advice. Great film. And I'm going to check out your book as well, because that's one I haven't actually read myself. And here we go, Nick. I'm going to offer you a great thing. I'm going to be a tech genie for a second. I'm going to offer you a wish. What would you wish for? Oh, amazing. Yeah, tech genie. Uh, I'm assuming I can't just ask for more wishes. So uh, <laughs> I was got to test that rule first. If I could have perfect clarity on my hiring that would be the superpower i would wish for from the tech genie if i could know that the person i'm going to hire is going to be the right person or not definitively that would solve all other problems i could possibly have as a tech leader oh, wow yeah i like it that's a beautiful wish now as a tech genie i'm going to come back to you with a question around that so have you got any advices to maybe start the uh, direction of how to get that right mm, mm. you know there's a there's a, yes, I do. It's, it's maybe a brutal one, but I think it's the reality, which is that there's an old adage, or I think a, a common um, accent people use, which is hire slow and fire fast, right? Um, I actually don't believe in that. I actually believe in hire fast and fire fast. And the reason I say that is that the reality is hiring is more art than science. And you can institute all the rigor and rubric around it that you want. And I'm not suggesting that you don't, by the way. Everybody should absolutely do it, leverage as much quantitative science as possible to make the best decision possible, for sure. But the reality is, the best possible version of a hiring pipeline, the best possible version of that evaluation, only is, you know, 50-50 on whether you've hired the right person or not, frankly, right? And so the reality is, the best way you can make sure you're doing that is by identifying the wrong hires and firing them quickly both for their sake and for yours. When you uh, when you understand that somebody's not in the right role, the best thing you can do is fix that as quickly as possible. And if you are always doing that, then even though you may make some wrong hires, because again, you're just more art than science, right? You'll still be able to sort of fix it quickly and end up in the same place where you've got the right team. Great, that's brilliant. And by me asking that question, I think I've got a great way of making that wish come true. So I'm gonna work on that for you, Nick, that's great. <laughs> so. As we hit the final full stop, what's your key takeaway that you'd like to gift our tech leader audience listening to this podcast? What's your final words? Yeah, I'll reference another great mentor that I had one time. He's named Troy Saxon Getty. He passed away a few years ago. Really lovely man. And he changed my mind forever about tech leadership. And it was when I was a young, young mentee and I was being influenced in that direction. And I was lamenting somebody who was reporting to me that just their behavior didn't make sense to me. And he said, Nick, you have to think about software engineering as a right-brained activity, not a left-brained activity. People think it's mathematics and accounting. It's not. It's critical problem-solving. It's art, right? It's a right-brained activity. And when you have right-brained activities, inspiration comes at random moments. 3 a.m., you know, you wake up or you're in the shower or it's, it, it just happens, right? He says, if you treat software engineers like divas, imagine every single software engineer that works for you is Mariah Carey, right? And, you know, you, you, she, she has proclivities and sort of eccentricities and whatever, but man, that woman can sing and she cranks out the hits, right? So if you're the manager of Mariah Carey, your job is kind of just to get out of her way, 
right? Create the environment for her. And then, you know, whatever she, if she needs the green M&Ms or she wants to be up at three o'clock in the morning or whatever, like fine, if that's what it takes to, to produce the awesomeness, right? So understand that it's a right brand activity. You have to give your, your developers opportunities to be creative and to sort of figure out the environment that works best for them. And if you allow that, you will get the best possible outcome from them. Fantastic. Great advice. What a wonderful note to finish on. I was going to do a bit of singing a Mariah Carey then uh, to finish. All on. right, sing us out. You see, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's been great having you on CTO Confessions, Nick. Thanks so much. I loved being here. It was great. And finally, remember to subscribe to CTO Confessions podcast and IT Labs newsletter where you get regular tech articles and invites to the IT Labs webinar series. URLs for this can be found at the bottom of this page. We are consistently creating material to create, nurture and support a community of tech leaders. And of course, if you want to know more about IT Labs services, including our Teams as a Service service, please don't hesitate to get in touch. As mentioned in the intro, please think of us like tech leaders' favourite off-the-shelf service, providing agility, high-performing teams off that shelf with a wide breadth of skill and knowledge. Well, that's all, folks. Look after each other and keep safe. Wishing you all a good day or evening, wherever you are in the world, from all of us here at IT Labs. Live long, live well and prosper. Until we meet again on the next CTO Confessions podcast.